Uh, so when you look at 1 Corinthians 15, there are multiple applications within that chapter that he gives to us about the resurrection. So we're going to take a couple minutes and you are going to point them out or um, at least point to them and we can look at them together. So if you're in 1 Corinthians 15 with your Bibles or phones or whatever it is, how important practically is the theology of the resurrection? Or what practical importance does it have? You tell me. 1 Corinthians 15. And give us that verse so we can all uh, see what you're seeing. The whole chapter, from beginning to end. Okay, without the resurrection, we are not being saved. So what's the practical, like what's your practical... Okay, it, it's validated by and corroborates with Scripture. What else? No. Yeah. Okay, his resurrection or the fact that there is a resurrection and therefore his means therefore we can have, the possibility of resurrection has been established and therefore we can hope in it. What else? We are still in our sins without a resurrection, particularly Christ's resurrection, right, Ed? Yeah. Yeah, nothing is to be more pitied than someone who has a false hope, one that's demonstrably false. And uh, we don't. The resurrection is true, right? And if you don't have a theology of it, my guess is that sh- that faith is, it's a little bit hollow. It doesn't have muscle behind it. The structure is good, but the, you know, that God tells us why and how he does stuff. That, that helps us have strength to it. Okay, what else? There's some real solid practical ones the apostle gives us in this text. Okay. Yeah, there's hope for the future, right? Like, I mean, as we face stuff in life, there's hope. And I think she said defeating sin, so I'm going to throw that one in there. That's a all of Romans 6, right? Like, if you are battling against sin, the certification of its defeat has already been accomplished. That means you have to appropriate the power of Christ, right? Like, that, that victory may not be realized in your life, so you have to put work in. You've got to trust in God's grace. But the power over death has already been established by Christ, right? I think I gave the example. It's like the victory's already won. The, the time on the clock hasn't expired yet. You know. All right. What else? There's some big ones. Yeah? Yeah, we're, we're talking about a resurrection. In fact, we're going to really celebrate it next week. And it's not merely our faithfulness on the line. We are making God a liar if there is no resurrection, which is really, really not a good thing to do. Okay. Yeah, the the only thing not submitted to Christ is God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And they dwell in mutual harmony. There's no necessity of like a opposing submission. Right? You submit like a rabid dog 
There's no need for Christ to submit to Father, but the Father still is in that economy over. Hold on, there was a hand here first, then Haley. Ed? <laughs> Not only free to, but compelled to. Right? Like, stop it. Haley? Yeah, the hope of the resurrection gives us hope that the the person you see in the mirror, whether it's the mirror of Scripture or the glass mirror, is not the person you'll be stuck with forever. Right? Those scars, those ugly blemishes on your face, I think part of glory is the removal of the effects of sin. But more than that, the glory of Christ is shared with us in some way that I think is hard for us to quantify, but it's a something commensurate with Christ and the glories of heaven. Haley? So if we just go with that last phrase, it's kind of a, a conceptual summary of that verse. Your labor is not in vain. Right? When you get to heaven, all of your labor, the battle against the sins in your life, that, that you are diligently trying to pursue Christ's grace and that are hard. You know, the resistance to easily sin when it would be most satisfying, whether it's venting your anger or gossiping about someone else, and you know how that always kind of makes us feel like we're better? Maybe like make someone else look bad or, you know, talk about their badness. Like the resistance to say those things, to join in those cheap thrills of sin, bears eternal goodness for those who resist the impulse of sin. Right? And not only that, our labors, things like setting up chairs, cleaning up after next Easter's breakfast. <clears throat> Just saying, like things like that. <laughs> um, the, the simple things, the courage to share the gospel with a coworker when fear is calling you not to. It's not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. The discipline as a fatigued, exhausted parent to walk your child to Christ with words of comfort and challenge and exhortation and prayer. These are not in vain, even if your child never comes to Christ in this life. God is honored by that faithfulness. Be faithful. Your labor's not in vain. There's a big one right in the middle of that I think is kind of compelling that you guys missed. Yeah, we're going to be incorruptible. That's not the one I was thinking of, but that's really cool. Right? Like, you will no longer be corruptible. I am so corruptible. Right? It's a couple of irritations and I, I clap back. It doesn't take much to corrupt my good character. Yeah. Yeah, whether we're talking about the maybe non-moral stuff, right? Like my body is getting worn down day by day and spiritually sometimes we decay too, right? Like if we're not walking in the spirit, walking in sanctification. Haley? Okay, you're actually in the text we're going to go to tonight, so I want to I put off those ones. Did you guys see in the middle where like Paul's like, I fight with wild beasts at Ephesus? Like, I think there's a fearlessness that Christian has, or can have. Yeah, like, warmer, warmer, no, cold, cold, colder, yeah. No, I just think in the middle, he's talking about like, we are risking our lives sometimes for the gospel's sake. We send missionaries overseas 
And well-meaning people who love that person will warn them away from the cost. Like, hey, what do you, your children will grow up and they'll never play sports. That's like, good gravy. Like, yeah, that's okay. But like those types of things, but more, like we, we send missionaries to dangerous places. Um, Basellas have family that were in South Sudan for quite a while. Man, that is a dangerous, sketchy area to live in and be a faithful Christian proclaiming the gospel. What causes us to brave gospel proclamation in life-threatening scenarios is the fact that we are confident there's a resurrection. The resurrection changes so much about our lives. The battle against sin, the hope that we can defeat sin, the hope that that battle is worth it, the confidence by which we give money in our offering and know that that is actually a valuable treasure that we give to Christ and invest in eternity, not just in this life. Right, it's not just about paying salaries and having nice buildings. This is, we give to Christ. Like this is about him. And we serve him and we trust him. So, so the theology of the resurrection, which tonight is all theology after this point, is so vital. Because I, th- I think theology is the, the knowledge by which our arms of faith hold on to these truths. And the strength with which you keep living in the, in the shadow of the resurrection actually compels so much godliness. And so much labor, and, and even the interactions with one another, and why we do what we do is often just simply because the resurrection is true. Right? The resurrection is true. So we come to verse 35, and there's a skeptical question. You know, there's questions that are good. I always say something like this, the truth is not afraid of good questions. You know, I, I say good, right? Because there's bad questions. Go to the Garden of Eden. Did God really say the question was not like, what, did, did he say that? The question was, really? It was meant to undermine. It was meant to, to question the integrity of their theology and cause doubt. And so this question in verse 35 that the apostle frames out that they said, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? The, the point is, is it just seems ridiculous. Like I... I've experienced this on this side of dispensationalism, right? Like, like there will be a sense in which because someone doesn't understand it, they'll ask a question that will be like, well, seriously, like you actually believe in that? You know, so probably the most common one I've got, so if you've ever had this one, it's like, so like, are, are you, like you really believe in that left behind stuff? And all I can think of is like Kirk Cameron movies. And it's kind of embarrassing because like in terms of general framework, yes, Right, like I do, but the movies are so cringy that I just want to like hide from that theological like stuff, and, and that's almost what they're doing here. Like, come on, Paul, really seriously? Are you are you trying to say this is so silly? Um, true confession. Tim LaHaye married my parents. He was the, he was my my mom's pastor in San Diego. Um, so this question here is intended to have that same kind of like author of Left Behind. Yeah, well, I, yeah. It's, see, Haley, you've never had the misfortune of either reading the books or watching the movies. Believe me, if you watch the movies, you will reject this theology quickly. So please don't. It's like the sample at Sam's Club that's horrific. So it does the opposite of its intention. Okay, number two here. As you're looking at these points, okay, that skeptical question, he's now going to deal with. He's actually going to take a head on and say, like, okay, let's deal with this. You've asked a hard question. Let's, let's deal with it. 
So he gives an argument based on nature to illustrate the principle of death preceding life. And he's doing more than just illustrating that, but look at verse 36. So I've put the scripture in front of you, and a couple times I'll, I'll actually kind of organize it, but I, I thought it was helpful. It says, you foolish person. So that's a foolish question, right? Like, that's really the saying. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Okay, so he's making a couple points here. If, if you start with verse 36, what's the initial prelude to a resurrection? Death. And so he's just using that agricultural analogy. You bury a seed. You can see the metaphor there. You bury a seed. That seed is in some ways dead and buried then before it comes to life in a new plant. Okay, it's not only that, but then verse 37, and what you sow is not the body. You don't, you don't plant a plant, you plant a seed in terms of its metaphor, right? And what comes out of that seed is something different. A seed does not grow up out of a seed. A plant does. And so he's saying our natural body is what's um, planted in this parallel, but what comes out is something entirely different, something spiritual. He's going to explain that in just a little bit. And the final one is that God is the one that affects this transition, right? God gives it a body as he has chosen. So, so a couple thoughts here. Go back to 1 Corinthians 6. And there, there, verse 13, 12, 13, 14, he's suggesting that they have a theology that says the body is merely a vessel. It's like a, it's, it's like a disposable cup. Right? Just use it however you want, and then what do you do with a disposable cup when you're done with it? You toss it. And so they're like, sweet, if it's just a disposable cup, I'm going to do all sorts of naughty stuff like, Sleep with prostitutes, right? That's what 1 Corinthians 6 context is. And, and then he makes an argument suggesting that this is the seed then that brings to life in a full plant, right? That there's, there is correlation between the two. It's not merely just thrown away. What is planted, the seed produces, you could say it this way, wheat is planted. What comes out of that wheat seed that's planted? A wheat plant. And so this idea that the body in this life is totally apart from the eternal person or the, the resurrected incorruptible person that you will be is nonsense. So what you do in this body actually matters to that eternal person that you will be in heaven. That, that to treat your body as though it's merely a, a disposable, um, like it doesn't matter what you do in your body, it doesn't matter if you hurt your body, damage your body, if you have sex with your body, if you treat it in an unhealthy manner. He's saying that type of theology ignores the, the continuity, the, the transition that it is this body that's resurrected. Right? It is this body that is resurrected. It's not a new body. It's this body that's resurrected. This seed comes to life. And who does that? God does it. God resurrects the body. So I'm not trying to argue that, um, I mean, I have no idea how God resurrects in, in what he does because uh, just the, uh, the thought that God resurrects people who've been dead for 8,000 years is just stunning to me because it seems as though their body is not only dust, 
But it's like, bent, like that matter doesn't go anywhere. Like the way the world works, it's, that matter moves, right? Like theoretically, if you're following that matter, that those, those nutrients in that body planted, let's say you bury someone by a tree, that tree produces fruit, someone or something eats that fruit, and their, their matter and their molecules are spread throughout this earth over 10,000 years. I don't know how God reconstitutes bodies, but there's some correlation between your body today and your resurrection body. So don't, don't damage your body. Don't disregard it. And certainly don't sin with it. All right. Point number three on your notes. The principle of appropriate bodies for glory and the world. So he says this, and I, I outline it for you. A little bit of a, um, familiar with the phrase, chiastic arrangement. It's, it goes like this, A, B, C, B, A, kind of in its argumentation. It says, for not all flesh is the same, and this is just the text I, I put in brackets, anything I added to the text. For not all flesh is the same, there is one kind for humans, another kind for animals, another kind for birds, another kind for fish. Well, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? If we look at the, the skin of animals, we can see in taxonomy, they all, there's different skins, there's, different, there's, there's something appropriate to the habitat, the needs of that animal, that creature. Um, and so he's just making, again, this, this real clear insight from nature. Point C there on that as you're reading through. He moves to, to the idea of glory, having, having gone with flesh. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. The glory of the heavenly body is of one kind. The glory of the earthly body is of, is of another. There is one glory of the sun. There's another, and I think his point is, there's a different glory of the moon and a different glory of the stars. So it is interesting, in both of those, he seems to go from most glory, glorious and maybe we'd say most complex animal. So we go man, sun, and it kind of descends down so that you end with fish and stars, which are the, the least brilliant lights in the night sky compared to the moon and the sun. I guess I should say sky. And, and so he's, he's building at least the thought that there are differences Right? There are differences within God's design. So humans have a body that's built for this earth. And animals have bodies built for this earth. And birds and fish, likewise, for inhabiting this earth, whether it's in the sky or in the sea. The planets have glory, and they're in the heavens. And so the man of earth has a body, I could use the word carcass, that's that's for this earth. And we, who will one day be in heaven, will have glory, right? Fit for heavenly existence. So he's making a little bit of, of, of point there. And, and then he just says at the end, for stars, um, they differ in glory. So a couple points here I think he's making. The initial body in this earth is susceptible to corruption. We just are. We're, we're, we're fallen creatures. We can be twisted and deformed spiritually. And so, like, for instance, in Romans 8, that the creation is going to be set free from its bondage to corruption. Right? That the creationists could be set free from this bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together 
in the pains of childbirth. But he starts that off by saying creation is corrupted. You know, so God has given it this glorious purpose. And when sin came, it wasn't just Adam who was messed up. We all had uh, somewhat of a deformity in the ability for uh, our being to accomplish the purpose God has given to us. So whether it's, it's animal life or plant life, right? So we have weeds. Um, animals now are at least carnivorous and have a fear of man within them. Uh, some of these things are part of just the corruption of sin that God has allowed to rest on the animals as a result of Adam's sin. Not only that, we're, we're somewhat dishonorable or dishonored. Right? Like our, at least as Christians, we are treated shamefully as representative of Christ. So when he moves from like a, a life of this earth to a glorious heavenly life in this parallel, there's a sense in which we recognize right now we experience shame and dishonor, at least in partnership with Christ, right? To suffer dishonor with him. And one day in the future, we will receive glory with him. And then maybe we could say last, we're weak. We're susceptible to weaknesses. So frailty, infirmities, diseases. I mean, maybe even just the, the, the possibility that whether tiredness or lack of food just drains us of vitality of life. Like These are weaknesses to which it seems the heavenly body is not susceptible. So if you just want some scripture proofs, I think 2 Corinthians 4, someone might have mentioned this. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. So he's giving us this, this kind of rhythm of, you know, humanity and animals and birds and fish, and then he moves through sun, moon, stars. He's moving from bodies on this earth to bodies fit for heaven. He's moving from weak, corruptible flesh to a glorious display of power. So then he moves to, to his um, next point in verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Now I put these in parallel so you'd see really what he's doing simply. The, the, the um, maybe you could say that the person who's still in Adam, or, or at least has the curse of sin, which we all still kind of have residing on us, right? Because we're going to die. It's sown perishable, sown in dishonor, sown in weakness, sown a natural body, right? And then it will be raised imperishable. It will be raised in glory. It'll be raised in power. It'll be raised a spiritual body. So he's, he's pulling forward then those themes of an earthly body versus a heavenly body, and he's showing us by just declaring, this is what he means. In the resurrection of the dead, perishable becomes imperishable. Honor, excuse me, dishonor becomes glory. Weakness becomes power. The natural body is a now spiritual body. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. What does spiritual body mean? Because it feels a little bit strange, doesn't it? What's spirit? Right, you think not physical, it's not material. But, but I, again, I think the point that the apostle is making is something fit for this realm where the spirit lives. 
like where the Spirit is moving and giving life as opposed to just a natural body that is spirit-less. You see that same contrast, I think, in, in uh, Romans 8, where that, that we have life in the Spirit, and those without the Spirit have no life. They cannot battle the flesh. Uh, they, they have no hope. They have no power. I, it, I would assume that throughout all eternity, you and I will still be indwelt by the Spirit. All right, last major section. I think it's probably the major. Did you have a question, Carol? Okay. You did have a question, didn't you? Oh, okay. The, the, the hand went up. I saw it out of the corner of my eye. And Tom. I don't know what you mean by weightier. I have no idea. So I, I guess what I would assume is your DNA, glorified, unfallen, expressed. You know, so like the aging process, you think about what does a person in their prime look like? Yes. Kenyon just pointed at himself, so. <laughs> what, you know, like maybe, maybe I could be a little more personal. What do you look like in your prime? When was that or when will that be? And, and usually I think we think in age-wise, right? Like I've, I've heard before somewhere in your 20s, right? Like maybe you enter your 20s, there's still a little bit of immaturity. By the time you're exiting your 30s, you're already aging. You know, so somewhere in that window of time, <laughs> I'm making no claims on, on expertise of human ideals. I know in terms of athletics, you, you achieve your athletic peak at 28 if you stay active. So like pro athletes at 28 are at their best physical like potential that they can be if they're healthy and stay fit. That's, that's really, I, I still think that's a shabby comparison because here's, here's the problem with someone who's even in that prime. They've already started aging, right? That's their prime, but, but from the moment you're born, you're, you've got all sorts of decay beginning, right? You're being irradiated by the sun. You're also eating all sorts of things that aren't necessarily healthy, and your DNA starts out sideways, right? It, like, we, we are not perfect creatures, so, but I would say you take someone in that age and you at least have the best glimpse of what we might be seeing physically in heaven, that is, the ideal of you expressed genetically. And so, like, some of us, you know, like, we have, you know, poorly shaped noses and, you know, maybe one eye is, like, a little bit off-center. Like, that's going to be all cleaned up if DNA is expressed perfectly. And I think it will be. I think that's the point is, like, Diversity is not the issue. It's the, it's the flaws that have happened as a result of sin. And the noetic effect of sin probably means that we are a whole lot less good-looking than people used to be. We are a whole, probably a whole lot less intelligent than people used to be. And not only is evolutionary theory not true, it is the opposite of truth. This thing's, this thing's not getting better. Entropy is real on a personal level and on a... Uh, a corporate level, all of us. All right, I, I do want to move on. I, this, this section to me at the end is really uh, helpful. I'm going to make basically um, five observations from this little section here. 
Let me read it all and then make those observations. It is sown in weakness. What are we talking about being sown in weakness? This body, and I think it's actually probably a little bit of a reference to Adam, who is the man of dust, right? Like he's made out of the dirt of the ground, and he's going to return to dirt. So it is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a life, excuse me, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual body that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual body. I added those brackets, so please just be aware. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so shall we also bear the image of the man of heaven. So first he starts with a case that there are two, I'll say opposites. That's probably a little bit of a strong word. That's really not my point. My point is there are two realms that are, are necessary to each other that he makes out. He says, um, it is sown in weakness, raised in power. It is sown natural. It is raised spiritual. If there is a natural body, if there is, we're all living in it, it is true, there is also a spiritual body, uh, one designed for existence in heaven, one designed for life by the Spirit, um, one designed for worship in that um, blessed heaven. Yeah? Did you have a question again? Yeah, I think it's your hand going up for your pen. You're just like, you're psyching me out, Carol. Oh, well, it's fine. So, so again, if you go to verse um, 44, there is, there is also, you'll see that phrase there. So, so these, these are also temporally successive. One comes first, and he makes that really clear. Uh, look again, verse 45. Thus it is written, the first Adam, and then scoot ahead, the last Adam. And so he's making a point that not only are they somewhat necessary, that is, if there is one, there is another, but he's also suggesting that there's an order to this. First Adam, last Adam. I think sometimes we say second Adam. Um, he moves on then. He says, each man is appropriate for his cosmic sphere, is how I've written it. It may not ring to you, but like both origin and character. So looking again, um, verse 47, there was a man, or excuse me, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. So both his origin and his character. And then he doesn't give the character of Christ, but he just says the second man is from heaven. And I would assume then that he is, he is implying, although he doesn't spell it out this time, that therefore he has a spiritual body commensurate with heaven. I think you'd see that in verse 46 a little bit. This is consistent where Christ is coming from. So where is he coming from? When Christ returns, where is he coming from? Right, Philippians 3, we just went through this a few weeks ago. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior. Or 2 Thessalonians. And to grant relief to those who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. The, the second, or the last Adam, is a man of heaven who is coming from heaven, and his origin and character are in concert with the life, the expectation, the goodness, and the glories of heaven 
and that's where we will be. And that's the, the Adam who represents us, the Adam who is the pattern of our resurrection, which is where he goes next with that fourth kind of uh, point of, uh, or observation. Verse 48, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. Even, even at a funeral, I think I said this at Lucy's funeral, from dust to dust. That's still true of us. Right? If we were to bury any of you in the ground and come back 100 years later, I don't think there would be a lot left. If it's any type of normal soil, my guess is even the bones are gone after 100 years. Just, it's what we are. It's a reminder of our frailty. We don't survive past death. We just turn back to dust. At least our bodies don't. They're resurrected in the resurrection, of course. Okay, then he says this. As it, as it is, excuse me, as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. That's a really, like if you didn't catch that, what does he say you are of? Like, like he says the same thing in Philippians, a little more bluntly, citizens of heaven. God already considers you Someone who is of heaven, right? You are of heaven. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Now, I would suggest to you that he's ultimately going to put this in the future in the next verse. And that would be my, ne- my, my kind of final point here in 49, that this transformation has a not yet element to it. Look at 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall bear the image of the man from heaven. He's pushing back on the Corinthians' bad theology. When is the resurrection going to happen? Later. That's a great answer. Sometime in the future. But it has not happened in the past. What has happened in the past, though? We have borne the image of the man of dust. Like we are, we are still in the image of Adam physically. So that's why we can say from dust to dust, because we still have Adam and the curse that was on Adam still in some sense rests on our bodies, right? Like we are all going to die. We are dying. Isn't that encouraging? <laughs> and it honestly is encouraging because the point is this. How, how do you know that you're represented by Adam? Because you're dying. And if Adam's sin and death has passed to you, that same work of God to hold you accountable for the sin of Adam and his representation of you is the same work of God by which he holds you rewardable as represented by Christ. Right? Like, if guilt, if Adam's guilt, as by one man, sin into the world and death by sin, for all have sinned, so also by one man. What? Yeah, we're, we're given this resurrection. We're given this new life through Christ by this one man. His obedience is our obedience. His resurrection is our resurrection. All right, so uh, this passage ends with this thought of like this representation of the man of dust, this representation of the man of heaven, and there is a future time coming when we will bear the image of the man of heaven. So here's, here's the hope then, like 1 John 3, 2. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. 
So we are already under Christ in him, people who are destined for heaven, citizens of it. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him, right? Where we'll see him as he is. Wait, what a blessing to know that not only do we have the resurrection, our resurrection's an improvement. <laughs> like, on so many levels, it's an improvement. Uh, the decay, the diseases, the oldness, the wrinkles, the tiredness of the body, the necessity and dependence on food and, and things like this, it seems as though heaven washes away that absolute dependence on, on the sustaining stuff of life that this world is known for. I mean, no one, there's going to be no medicine in heaven. Clinics will be out of business. There will be no one crying in heaven. Like, like, you think about what heaven holds in store. You said, well, we have more matter. I don't know, maybe we'll all be taller. Whatever it is will be the genetic ideal of what God has made. So, I would like to think we'd all be about 6'4". That's what Kenyan is, right? Like, I would just... If you don't believe in the, like the theology of the resurrection, which is that what this text, this text is all theology of explaining, you know, some simple, simple thoughts like death precedes the resurrection, but also that God is going to do something in the transition from this life to the next, where there is continuity between who you are today and who you will be in heaven, but also radical change to your body. But it is your body that's resurrected. Because it was Christ's body that was resurrected. You will be glorified. Your body will never need to seek. I mean, like, you won't need to improve it. You know, you look in the mirror like, ooh. <laughs> Honey, I need some new makeup. You know, whatever. I mean, like, that's not going to be the need of heaven. <laughs> right? I, I imagine that we will really enjoy the diversity because the diversity will be something that will prove the Savior's artistic skill. That when we see one another, we will just see the glorious work of Christ in not merely saving, but in glorifying. So that the glory we have in heaven is in fact a glory we all see and recognize is from Christ. So, I mean, Christ is ultimately the one glorified in heaven by the glory he gives to us. Okay, any questions on this text? Matt? We raised in honor. Mm -hmm. I, I think his point in 1 Corinthians 6 is to suggest to us that to treat what we do in this body as irrelevant to eternity is nonsense that you are the same person in heaven and your body is resurrected. Therefore, act in this body 
as one who knows that this body is the one resurrected. We do not get a new body in the sense of a different body. We get a reformed, glorified body. Not, I mean, did Jesus Christ have the same body? If he's our pattern, that's why I said, like, to me, I don't understand how God, but, like, like to me, there's no doubt about it. He does, because that's what he says, right? So whether, whether you get burned to ash like the reformers did in the days of Bloody Mary, or whether you get, you know, eaten by an animal and digested, God will reconstitute your body in the resurrection, right? Like, like I, I have no idea of the how, but it seems like there's continuity. That's why I'm trying to say, like, continuity to me is that it says there's a connection without trying to say there's an equivalency. Again, I don't, I don't know how God does that. I just know that that's what he says. So I, I just kind of have a simplistic faith on that one, like, okay, so there's continuity between this body and the resurrection body. Christ was literally, like, they could still see the nail prints, right? And, and so I, I think we ought to be careful that we don't take this body as a throwaway paper cup. That, that you know, God is going to give us a totally different cup. That's not true. He's going to remake that paper cup in glory. Haley? Probably more than we are, but I, I am sympathetic to people who can't afford burial. So I, I would generally counsel those who can afford it to bury, but I, I don't. I'm not worried about it. He's going to raise us. Again, if Christians got eaten by lions, you don't have to go far down that imaginary trail. Like, God has no problem resurrecting a body that has gone through all sorts of trauma in its death. Travis? I don't, I, by old people, I think you actually mean people who look old. I don't think there will be people who look old in heaven. Well, since it seems as though aging is really what we mean by that is you're slowly dying. Yeah, like I'm not trying to be unkind here, but let me just use myself as an example. I see, I see more problems with me every day. This is last week I, I realized, like, there's a growing chorus of white hairs on the side of my head, which is probably better than the top, where I just have less hair all the time. I, I don't think anyone's going to have um, aged gray hair in heaven. I think Christ has white, right? But that's not because of his age. I would assume that these are signs of either genetic or, or age-related maladies. Haley? Mm -hmm. Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he does, and, and I think he has um, some I implications that he points to and makes much of. I think it is a really interesting thought, and you, like I said, it's very encouraging to meditate and know that any child that the Lord brings into his heaven, it's a wonderful and majestic piece of wisdom and grace that he does so.
and, and what that looks like, it's hard to know. But it is kind of fun to read Alcorn's book and imagine heaven. And that's where I look at this text, and I'm just, like, it makes me want to know what the body looks like. To what, that, what, that, what is the condition like to have a spiritual body that's fit for heaven? I mean, what do you need in heaven that is so substantially different from now? Yeah, incorruptibility. Yeah, imperishability. Yeah, and, and you think about how this would resonate in the Greek culture. This is a very Greek city. Right? This is only, only uh, it's fairly near Athens. They have their own athletic games, the Isthmian games every two years. This is a very Greco, like a, that, that, that Hellenistic culture, that Greco-Roman culture. And for them, when you think of their pantheon, what are their gods like? What? Physically, they're fit. Yeah, but they're corruptible, right? They're like, they're trashy people. They're sleeping around. They're lying to each other. They're, they're doing all, I mean, like, they're very human. Well, I mean, even think about this, like, like you know, there's these goddesses who are, who are renowned for their beauty, which implies some goddesses aren't very beautiful. You know, like, like, there's, there's this, like, when you look at the Greek pantheon and then you look at our picture of heaven, there's a stark difference he's drawing here. Like, there's a holiness and a goodness and a perfection in our heaven that wasn't in the Greek imagination. And he basically says, your heaven is worse in this text. Your heaven's very earthly. Our heaven is heavenly. And, and he calls us to live for it. Live for it, right? Like, that's how he ends. Your labor is not in vain. Live for this heaven. Where your body, where your life, where the glory of Christ is on display forever, don't you dare trade it away for this life. Risk your life for Jesus. Put yourself in the threat of lions. Go give your heart to Jesus and risk your whole existence in this life because you're not risking anything in the life to come. You're actually earning and working and investing for the glory of Christ. All right. Let's, let's be done with talking about the resurrection and move to prayer.